If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open to the Gospel of John. We have been in a study of this book for the past several weeks, and it's going to continue on for quite some time as we are lifting the stories of grace off of the pages of John's Gospel. Today is a great story. It's not just a story of grace, it is a story of truth as well. And as the two come together, it leads to wonderful freedom. I'll show you what I'm talking about. John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, verse 16 is the most familiar passage in all of the Bible. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. A lot of people are familiar with that verse, but they don't know the verses leading up to it, the teaching leading up to it. There you have it. But listen closely to what follows. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is deep teaching. It confounded even a great Jewish mind. It confounds a lot of Gentile minds. There are a lot of people that would seek a relationship with you that stumble over this teaching. I pray this morning that we will make it smooth. I pray that as we look at what you're saying and we find the meaning behind it, Lord, I pray that it will change hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. I can seldom ever read John chapter 3 without thinking about an excerpt from one of Lee Strobel's books. Now, he wrote a very popular book called The Case for Christ, 
20 years ago, he printed that book, and it has sold literally millions of copies. It was so popular that it became a movie about a year and a half ago, and a lot of people have been blessed by that work. But Lee Strobel has also written a number of other books. One of those is called The Case for Faith. He begins that work with these two quotes, and they are almost opposing quotes. Take a look. The first one is from George H. Smith, a devout atheist. Now, isn't that an interesting term, a devout atheist? He is a faithful atheist. He is faithful to nothing. So here we go. Christian theism must be rejected by any person with even a shred of respect for reason. Now, that's what George Smith would say about Christianity. Look at what Charles Colson says to oppose that. Christian faith is not an irrational leap. Examined objectively, the claims of the Bible are rational propositions well supported by reason and evidence. Colson, prior to his death just a few years ago, became really a wonderful apologist, a person who stood in defense of the gospel. He became an apologist for faith in Christ, helping people understand not only what they should believe, but why they should believe it. I really appreciate everything that Colson has to say. But you can see how these two quotes stand in opposition to one another. Well, Strobel goes on in the first chapter of his book to talk about faith and the pursuit of it. Listen to this. We recorded this earlier this week. I'm not going to tell you who it is that you will hear reading this, but I will tell you that every time I think of Nicodemus, I picture this man, the way he looks, and the way he sounds. So good luck figuring out who it is. steadied himself by gripping both sides of the podium. He was 80 years old, fighting Parkinson's disease, but he stared intently at the throngs inside the RCA dome in Indianapolis and spoke in a steady, forceful voice. There was no hint of hesitation, no uncertainty or ambiguity. His sermon was essentially the same simple and direct message he had been preaching for 50 years. He referenced the chaos and violence around the world and he zeroed in on the anguish, pain, and confusion in the hearts of individuals. He talked about sin, about forgiveness, about redemption, and about the loneliness, despair, and depression that weighs so many people down. All of us want to be loved, he said in his familiar North Carolina cadence as he approached the conclusion of his talk. All of us want somebody to love us. Well, I want to tell you that God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave us his son to die on the cross for our sins. And he loves you so much that he will come into your life and change the direction of your life and make you a new person, whoever you are. Are you sure that you know Christ? There comes a moment in which the Spirit of God convicts you, calls you, speaks to you about opening your heart and making certain of your relationship to God. And hundreds of you here tonight are not sure. You'd like to be sure. You'd like to leave here tonight knowing that if you died on the way home, you would be ready to meet God. So he urged them to come, and they did. At first, there was a trickle of people, and then the floodgates opened with individuals, couples, and entire families pouring into the empty space in front of the platform. Soon they were shoulder to shoulder, the crowd wrapping around the sides of the stage, nearly 3,000 in all. Some were weeping, gripped by somber conviction. Others stared downward, still stewing in shame over their past. 
Many were smiling from ear to ear, liberated, joyous, home, finally. One married woman was typical. My mom died of cancer when I was young, and at the time I thought I was being punished by God, she told a counselor. Tonight I realized that God loves me. It is something I've known but couldn't really grasp. Tonight a peacefulness came into my heart. What is faith? There would have been no need to define it for these people on that sultry June night. Faith was almost palpable to them. They reached out to God almost as if they were expecting to physically embrace him. Faith drained them of the guilt that had oppressed them. Faith replaced despondency with hope. Faith infused them with new direction and purpose. Faith unlocked heaven. Faith was like cool water soaking their parched soul. But faith isn't always that easy, even for people who desperately want it. Some people hunger for spiritual certainty that something hinders them from experiencing it. They wish they could taste that kind of freedom, but obstacles block their paths. Objections pester them, doubts mock them. Their hearts want to soar to God. Their intellects keep them securely tied down. They see the television coverage of the crowds who have come forward to pray with Billy Graham and they shake their heads. If it were only that simple, they sighed to themselves. If only there weren't so many questions. Strobel was talking about the number of people that come to know Jesus through the Billy Graham Crusades. And then he goes on to discuss the fact that there are a lot of people that are hungry and thirsty for a faith like what they see people responding to at those crusades, yet there are things that stand in their way. There are questions that get in their way, and that keeps them from being able to get to a place where they can reconcile a relationship with God. Now, part of what grabs me out of that is this segment of what he says. What is faith? There would have been no need to define it for these people on that sultry June night. Faith was almost palpable to them. They reached out to God almost if they were expecting to physically embrace Him. Faith drained them of the guilt that oppressed them. Faith replaced despondency with hope. Faith infused them with new direction and purpose. Faith unlocked heaven. Faith was like a cool water soaking their parched soul. But faith isn't always that easy, even for people who desperately want it. Some people hunger for spiritual certainty, yet something hinders them from experiencing it. They wish they could taste that kind of freedom, but obstacles block their paths. Objections pester them, doubts mock them. Their hearts want to soar to God, their intellects keep them securely tied down. They see the television coverage of the crowds who come forward to pray with Billy Graham, and they shake their heads. If it were only that simple, they sigh to themselves. If it were only, or if only there weren't so many questions. Nicodemus would have fit in that exact same category. He was looking for faith in God, yet he had so many questions, it was difficult for him to get there. I've told you before that the Gospel of John focuses on the last three years of Jesus' life. Different than the other three Gospels, just the last three years. We meet Nicodemus at the beginning of those three years, and he shows up sporadically throughout the entire time. I want you to see a process of discipleship, unlike any other one you will find in the Bible. It takes three years. There are a lot of questions that have to be answered in Nicodemus's life. But as they are, things change dramatically for him. Dramatically. Let's get into Nicodemus's story. In order to really explore it, we have to figure out who this guy is. 
And the first verse of chapter 3 actually tells us a lot. In just one verse, listen to this. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Now, let's start with the first declaration about him. There was a man. He was a man, just like many of the men that are in here. Women in here can associate with that same thing. He was human. There was a man. That's who he was. He was a man with questions, not necessarily answers, though he should have had them. But it may very well be at this particular moment, as Jesus was meeting with Nicodemus, and we read about that meeting, Jesus had yet to entrust himself to him. If you were here last week, you heard us read this from chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Listen again. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. Jesus knew what was in the heart of Nicodemus, just as he knows what's in all of our hearts. And so when we come before him trying to get answers to our questions, in some situations, and this is tough teaching, Jesus does not entrust himself to us because he knows that we're not ready to receive. He knows that our heart is not prepared, our heart is not ready to take in the truth because he knows what it leads to and he knows where we're at. In this case, in chapter 3, Jesus had yet to entrust himself to Nicodemus. All he was doing was answering his questions. But the relationship did not form at this point. Now here's what was in the heart of him. He was a Pharisee, according to chapter 3, verse 1, which means he was very familiar, very learned in the things of God. He knew the Old Testament inside and out. He was a teacher of the Old Testament law. He knew a faith that was grounded in works. He did not know faith by grace. He did not know the New Testament teachings. All he knew was everything that he had been taught growing up and everything that he was teaching other people on this particular time. But he didn't know Jesus. He didn't understand Jesus. He was a Pharisee. Now John goes on to tell us that it's a little deeper than that. He was also a member of the ruling class. When we get into John chapter 7, you're going to see that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was this really interesting entity that the Romans allowed among the Jews. You have to remember that Israel was under Roman control. The Roman government was watching over everything that happened. This was a province of Rome. But Rome had this, well, well, interesting, it's the best way to say it, interesting philosophy of their provinces. If you don't bother us, we'll leave you alone. Don't mess with the peace of Rome and we'll let you do your own thing. And that was true even of the Jews. They allowed the Jews to govern themselves, to police themselves, even to the point of being able to punish their own except for execution. And when it came to capital punishment, they needed the Roman government to agree to it. Other than that, the Jewish ruling class was allowed to take care of everything in this province. So they did. Each of the local communities, think of it this way, Libby would be one of the local communities. Each of the local communities had their own Sanhedrin, their own government, their own justice system among the Jews so that they could police themselves. Now, this might be kind of hard to understand, 
Sometimes those that were policed by the local governments didn't agree with the policing, so they wanted to appeal to a higher court. Those higher courts existed, appellate courts, if you will. And eventually, the Sanhedrin that existed in Jerusalem had the final say in everything. If you appealed something from the local community all the way to Jerusalem, then you would get the final ruling. The men that were a part of the Jerusalem Sanhedrin were like the Supreme Court justices. They were supposed to be the best educated, the most well-versed in the things of God, so that they could settle any disputes, all disputes. That's who Nicodemus was. He was a part of the Supreme Court, the Jerusalem Sanhedrin. How he had gotten to that place, the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know much about his background. A lot of scholars would speculate and say that he was in his late 40s to early 50s at this point because people had to travel a few miles down the trail before they would sit on the council in Jerusalem. So he was a man who had some history with the Lord. But here he is meeting with Jesus, wanting to know what he's talking about, wanting to understand because the Sanhedrin was given the opportunity, if you will, responsibility, certainly, to decide what has to happen with Jesus and how the Jews should react to him. It appears that Nicodemus is the only one of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem that cared to dig deeply. The others had already set their mind on how they felt about Jesus. They had already predetermined the outcome. They didn't want Jesus bringing some new teaching. Nicodemus was intrigued. He wanted to learn more. So in John chapter 3, we find him going to the Lord at night, under the cover of darkness. Isn't that an interesting little detail that John puts in there? He met with him at night. Now why that was, a lot of people have speculated on. There's a group of people that say he went to see Jesus at night so that he would have an unobstructed time with him. No distractions. He would just get to talk to Jesus. I think there's probably validity to that. But there's another group of people, and I am counted among them, that believe that Nicodemus went to see Jesus at night because he was afraid. He was going to get answers to questions that the rest of the Sanhedrin had already said they had resolved and reconciled in their minds. And they didn't need any further time with Jesus. So when Nicodemus went to be with him at night, he was going there so nobody would see him. He was covertly trying to meet with the Lord. There's still a lot of people that do that exact same thing. They don't want other people to know that they are pursuing a relationship with Christ. So they don't tell anybody they're going to church. They might even leave town and find a church somewhere else so that nobody knows that they're actually doing this. I don't want people to think I've lost my mind. I don't want people to think that I'm going to change my life. I don't want people to think that I am really believing what the Lord has to say. But those people, just like Nicodemus, are folks who have more questions than answers. So they're trying to get the answers. In this particular case, in John chapter 3, Nicodemus is there because he's scared. So he's allowing the darkness to cover him. When he shows up the next time in Scripture... Things are a little different. I want to show it to you. Go to chapter 7 with me. John chapter 7. We are going to walk all the way through this chapter. If you're a note taker in your Bible, I want to encourage you to do a little bit of writing in your margin. And I'll show you what to write. Before we get to Nicodemus, you have to see what's going on. The Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths 
is upon them. Jesus is in the northern part of Israel, in the region of Galilee. That's where Nazareth is at. He's at home. He's up in Galilee. They all have to get to Jerusalem to participate in the feast. Jesus is with his family, his brothers and his sisters. The Bible will tell us they did not believe that he was the Messiah. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now you cannot read that with the normal, traditional, biblical tone and find the meaning in it. What I mean by that is you can't read, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. You cannot read it with a boring tone. You have to add some inflection into your voice in order to understand what's happening here. Because Jesus' brothers are saying to him, if you're really who you say you are, what are you doing here? Why are you up here in Galilee? We don't matter to anybody. You go down to Jerusalem and you perform these signs and wonders there. Why don't you reveal yourself to all your disciples where it really matters? Why don't you head to Jerusalem and you show everybody and it's the Feast of Booze, so this is the perfect time. Go down there and do that. It's dripping with sarcasm because they don't believe. And Jesus says, I'm not going to the Feast of Booze. I'm not going to do what you're saying because my time has not yet come. But I love this. He says, your time is already here. It's always here. I am with you all the time. Your time has come and you're squandering it. You're wasting it. He said, you go to Jerusalem. I'm not going. Now, if you're a note taker in your Bible... In the margin next to those nine verses, write the word family. Just write the word family. It's written right here in the margin of my Bible. Do the same thing. Family. I want you to watch what happens starting in verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Isn't that a great verse? Jesus went to Jerusalem, not publicly, but in private. It causes us to wonder, how did he do that? Well, think about the celebrities that are trying to get around the paparazzi. He put on a hat, put on some sunglasses, changed his clothes, he looked a little differently, and he went and walked around in Jerusalem. Or better than that, Jesus just said, yeah, you aren't going to see me. And he, he worked a miracle. But he went there first privately because he didn't want people to see him. He didn't want them to start pestering him. He didn't want to become a distraction. His time had not yet come. So he's there, his brothers are there, his sisters are there. Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? Because his brothers were there and his sisters were there. Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. 
If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. They found him and they started to to cause a, a riot. All of their muttering escalated and now they're trying to attack Jesus and Jesus puts them in their place. He summarily shuts them down. And he does it in this masterful, messianic way. Look at what I did and look at what you did. And you're bringing judgment against me? How can you do that? If you're a note taker, write in the margin of your Bible next to those verses, Jerusalem. It sets the stage for what's going on. From there, they start asking questions. Just like Nicodemus, penetrating questions. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? You've got to follow what's happening. They are muttering among themselves, asking these questions among themselves. And Jesus starts answering their questions. They weren't asking him. They were asking themselves. And Jesus answers their questions. Because he knows what's in the heart of man. He knows what they're wondering. So he just starts telling them. He just starts laying out for them the answers to the things that are lying at the the heart of their struggle with faith. And they don't care much for it. Over that section or in the margin of your Bible, you might write the word questions. Because that leads to the next section, which I have titled confusion. So you might write next to this next section, confusion. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Now let's get back into this and just see what Jesus said to him. You're coming to arrest me, and you're not going to be successful. You are coming to get me, and you ain't going to do it. You won't find me. Isn't that a great statement? It, it really is. Uh-huh. You want a piece of me? Good luck. That's exactly what he said. They had no idea who they were talking to because his time had yet not come. Jesus was not going to be arrested. And then he goes on to say, and where I'm going, you can't come. You can't come. 
I'm headed back to the Father, and as it is right now, you will not be there. Now, they have all kinds of confusion about this. What does he mean by saying that we won't get him? What does he mean by making a declaration like that? Who does he think he is? We're the Sanhedrin. If we want him, we'll get him. Not only are we the Sanhedrin, we are the supreme court. If we send our bailiff after him, he's caught. That's just the way it is. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. So he makes a declaration. And the next segment, I've titled exactly that, Declaration. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. If you're thirsty, you can come to me, and I will give you living water, and it will flow out of you. He declared himself to be the Christ. That's the declaration. And now, Nicodemus shows up. That's the last section. And in the margin of my Bible, I have written the word Nicodemus. This is his pursuit. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to him, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Verse 50, underline this verse. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Nicodemus is no longer in the shadows. He's no longer in the darkness. Nicodemus is speaking among the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. He is speaking as a member of the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court. And he says, this man deserves a hearing. You need to listen to what he has to say. And don't you love their response? Why should we listen to him? He's from Galilee. Does anything good come from Galilee? Can anything good come from Nazareth, the Bible says? Can anything good happen there a few weeks ago? We made this equation. Can anything good come from North Dakota? Same idea. Can anything good come from Galilee? Why would we even listen to him? You know what the prophet said. He's going to come from Bethlehem. He's not coming from Galilee. This is all wrong. So we're not going to listen. And Nicodemus says, but you should. And he takes a public stand for Christ. At this moment, he is out of the shadows. At this moment, things are beginning to click. At this moment, between John chapter 3 and John chapter 7, Jesus began to entrust himself to Nicodemus. But it isn't complete yet. Nicodemus is still pursuing faith. He is still in process. He is not firmly a disciple yet. But Jesus is entrusting himself to him. Jesus would say in John chapter 3, the wind of God is blowing across him. The wind of God is stirring something inside Nicodemus. 
That's what's going on in John chapter 7. The wind of God is blowing. And when you look at everything else that's happened, you can see it as plain as day as if the trees in Scripture are moving back and forth in the wind. The wind of God is blowing. And as that wind blows, Nicodemus' life will be forever changed. If you don't believe me, then believe the Bible. Let's go to John 19. John chapter 19. Picking up in verse 38. Jesus has just been crucified. He's still hanging on the cross. It's time for his body to come down. Verse 38 says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Listen close. Verse 39. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The sun was shining. Nicodemus is out of the shadows. The Sanhedrin watched as... Jesus died. Rome watched as Jesus died. The Gentiles watched as Jesus died. And you know that they stayed all the way through to the end. The Sanhedrin did. The Romans did. No question about that. None at all. And now Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea come. And they say, let us have the body. We will take care of him. We will take care of him. Everything changed. The wind of God blew across Nicodemus' life in such a strong, powerful way that he was out of the shadows and into the light. He was out of the shadows and into Christ. John stops his story right there. No other place in all the Bible are you going to find Nicodemus' name. John is the only one who writes about it. Some people actually believe because there's an extra biblical work called the book of Nicodemus. It's counted among the apocryphal books, but it has been widely discredited. But in the book of Nicodemus, here's the the speculation that has become for many people tradition. The reason John writes about Nicodemus the way he does and nobody else knows his story is because when Nicodemus came in John chapter 3, he came to John's house where Jesus was staying. And they went up on the roof, and that's where that meeting happened. Whether that's true or not, I have absolutely no idea, and that is not biblical authority. But isn't that interesting that Nicodemus would see it that way, or John would see Nicodemus that way, and he would record his story for us. But he doesn't give us the end. He doesn't tell us how it comes together. So it leaves all kinds of room for speculation. My imagination says that Nicodemus was counted among the 120 believers that were the early church in Acts chapter 1. Now that's just my imagination. Again, that's not biblical authority. That's just imagination and speculation. But it makes sense, doesn't it? Because you see the whole progression. And I don't believe Nicodemus would have ever walked away. His questions were answered. And those answers were really quite dramatic all the way back in John chapter 3. There were three main teachings that Jesus gave to Nicodemus, and none of them were easy. The first one came from the realm of the natural. 
It's a, a leveler. When he said that you must be born again and Nicodemus was so confused by that, he was simply leveling the playing field, saying that everybody is born of the flesh. Everybody is born of water. So he says, you have to be born again if you want to receive the kingdom of heaven. I'm just curious, and I'm going to ask you to respond. How many of you have been baffled at times by the idea of being born again? So was Nicodemus. He was one of those people that would say, Lord, what do you mean by that? You have to be born again. Well, Jesus has already said, flesh gives flesh. If you want to experience the kingdom of heaven, you're going to have to experience a spiritual rebirth. You're going to have to be born again of the Spirit. And just like human birth requires two parents, so does spiritual birth. In John chapter 3, Jesus would say, you're going to need the Holy Spirit in order for this to happen. You're going to need the Spirit of God. That's one spiritual parent. Peter would say in his first letter that you're also going to need the Word of God. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So when the word of God comes together with the spirit of God, spiritual birth can happen. Now the word of God certainly is the word of God, but remember John 1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Speaking of Jesus the Son. So when the Son comes together with the Spirit, then you can experience a spiritual rebirth and be connected to the Father. That's the way it works. You need the Son and you need the Spirit so that you can be with the Father. And that's all it means to be born again. The Spirit does His work and the Word does His work and you are born. There is not one person that was ever born physically or spiritually based on your own steam. I want you to think about that for just a second. How many of you can say that you remember being in the womb and thinking to yourself, well, I need to get out of here? <laughs> it, it doesn't work that way. You can't remember the process of birth thinking, whew, this kind of hurts, I'd like to speed it along. You can't remember any of that because it had nothing to do with you. Your spiritual rebirth requires the Spirit of God and the Word of God, the Holy Spirit and the Son, so that you can be connected to the Father and you're born again. That's what born again means. So Jesus just spoke from the natural and leveled the playing field so that everybody could understand that. But that was this really hard teaching and Nicodemus said, I don't get that, can't understand that at all. Just like a lot of us have said, Whew, that's a little too deep for me. So Jesus says, let me help you understand it. And back in John chapter 3, he uses some other deep teaching to do it. This is what he says. John chapter 3, verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Trying to help him understand the Holy Spirit and the way the Spirit works, this is what Jesus says. The Holy Spirit, which by the way, in the Hebrew and the Greek both, the word wind can be translated spirit. So the Spirit blows wherever he wants and however he wants and you cannot predict it. You certainly cannot control it. So the Spirit of God blows through your life doing whatever the Spirit is going to do. But that's what sets the stage unto salvation. 
Tina and I both grew up in the state of Kansas. We are very familiar with wind. The wind blows there all the time. It'll blow hot, it'll blow cold, it'll blow hard. There might be a gentle breeze, and every once in a while there is no wind, and nobody knows what to do, so they stay inside. That's the way the the wind works there. Sometimes the wind blows in a storm, sometimes the wind blows a storm out. That's the way the wind works in the prairies. Well, the Holy Spirit is the same way. Sometimes the Holy Spirit blows hot, sometimes the Holy Spirit blows cold. Sometimes the Holy Spirit blows strong. Sometimes the the Spirit blows in a gentle breeze. Sometimes the Spirit is completely still and it makes us wonder if God is even there. But the Spirit blows as He wills. When the Spirit of God blows hot, oftentimes those are trials. When the Spirit of God blows cold, that will oftentimes be the, the Spirit responding to our prayers. When there's a gentle breeze, that's just the everyday life with the Holy Spirit. And then, like I said, sometimes the Spirit is still, and we have questions, and we wonder. So Jesus says, you've got to figure this out, Nicodemus. The Spirit of God is blowing across you right now. The wind of God is blowing across you right now. The wind of God may be blowing in your life right now. And you have to determine what your response is. Because when the wind of God blows, our response matters. So he goes into this third difficult teaching, and it's tucked away right at the end of this. In verse 15, take a look. Before he gets into that familiar verse, verse 16, Jesus says this, verses 14 and 15, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Nicodemus would be very familiar with this because he's speaking to his Judaism. He started by speaking to the natural, and then he spoke of the spiritual, and now he's just using his past Judaism. And the reference he's making is to the book of Numbers during a time when the children of Israel were severely disobedient, and God decided to send judgment on them, so he sent snakes. You know that you have been severely disobedient when God sent snakes. Pretty simple. The snakes started biting the people, and some of them died, and others got very sick. And God didn't go back in and erase all of the consequences or all of their actions. He did not do any of that. All he did was provide an answer for their disobedience. He said to Moses, I want you to make a brass snake, put it on a pole, and lift that brass snake up into the sky, and whoever looks at the snake will be saved. So now Jesus is using that same illustration, speaking to his Judaism, and he says, I'm that snake, and I'm going to be lifted high. You know that he's going to be put on a pole, it's a cross. And whoever looks upon him will be saved. And so all Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, I'm just like that. You've already experienced it in your past. All you have to do for a future is understand that that's who I am. And by chapter 7, Nicodemus was figuring it out. And by chapter 19, he had it. He had it. And he came out of the shadows. You see, folks, we have to do the same thing. With the hard teaching of Jesus, we have to do the same thing. When the Spirit of God blows across us, when the wind of God blows across us, we have to be willing to ask the hard questions and listen to the hard teaching and allow God to change us. Because you see, salvation is really that simple. When the wind of God blows, it will always bring conviction. How we respond to conviction determines what happens from that point forward. If we surrender to that conviction... We move into relationship with Christ. If we oppose that conviction, if we fight against it, we stay apart from Christ. It's that easy. There is no neutral. 
You are moving closer to Jesus or you are moving further away. That's all it is. And it is all tied to how you respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. When the wind of God, when the Spirit of God blows through your life, what are you going to do with it? Problem is, like the Jews, the world today is still wanting to believe that we only believe in Jesus because of the things He does for us. That's all we want to hold on to. But that's not the way it should be. We should take that worldly idea and turn it upside down and look at it from a heavenly concept. And here's how we would do that. This is 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because He first loved us. That's how we establish a relationship with Jesus. Not because of what He does for us, but because He loves us. So if we will establish our faith, then sight will follow. If you try to establish your faith by sight, you're always going to miss it. Every time you're going to miss it. And that's what Jesus was teaching Nicodemus. Stop trying to do it that way. Turn it upside down and love Jesus because He first loved you and then you will see clearly. If you try to see clearly and then establish faith, you'll fall short every time. And that's the problem. So Nicodemus loved because Jesus first loved him. He established a relationship because God wanted it and made it possible. And that changed his life. It works that way for us too. You have to power through some of those obstacles to your faith. They come from all kinds of different backgrounds. Power through them that you might be saved. I'm going to ask Deanie to come up here and lead us in a time of prayer, and then the worship team is going to come, and they will offer our invitation. I don't know where you're at, but you need to power through if you're not in Christ. The wind of God is blowing across you. It's obvious because you're here. What is your response?